Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I owe you guys an explanation, because I had intended to have a brand new episode published today. It was going to be about hard drives and solid state drives. But ironically, though not really because it didn't involve my hard drive, uh, I lost it. Uh, There was a power issue as well as an internet issue. And the combination of those meant that my audio file was corrupted and I could not. I tried to (laughs) retrieve it. Trust me. Uh, It was not finished when the issue happened and I wasn't able to retrieve it or recover it. And the same is true for my notes. Uh, I was saving directly to the cloud. I did not realize that my internet connection had dropped out. So I didn't have a full version of my notes. I had an incomplete version, which meant that I needed to, you know, rewrite stuff. So that put me behind schedule. And I never want to go without publishing an episode. So in order to tide me over until Wednesday's episode, which will be the hard drive and solid state drive episode, I thought we should listen to a classic episode. And when choosing, I figured a good one would be How E3 Works. This episode originally aired on June 29th, 2016. Now, E3, for those of you who do not know, is a big... A trade conference that centers around video games. And of course, this year in 2020, they canceled the physical conference uh, fairly early on, uh, not, not too long after it became clear that COVID was going to be a really big problem. And so there was no physical conference this year. Instead, companies released information Uh, Some around a more virtual E3 type schedule, but others kind of did it just on their own, you know, their own timing. And uh, a lot of people have come up with some ideas about whether or not this means E3 itself is a thing of the past, if it's ever going to return. Uh, I'll talk more about that after the episode airs. But first, let's listen to this classic episode, How E3 Works. E3 and its history and its place in video games. Um, it's something that if you've never been and you only have followed the news that breaks regarding E3, you may not be fully aware of exactly what it's supposed to be. It is a trade show. It typically takes place in Los Angeles, California, although it has taken place in other locations throughout its history. And It's uh, like many trade shows. It's really meant for companies to uh, have lots of meetings and conferences, but also to show off their products. In fact, it's largely become a press-oriented event where companies are unveiling big new ideas to try and get a lot of buzz behind them. Sometimes they do it a little too early, and you might end up losing momentum by the time something finally comes out. Sometimes the things they announce never come out at all, and that also can become a problem. But I wanted to go through some of the history, Uh, and it's gone through a lot of changes. It first debuted back in 1995, so I'm going to give a history and evolution of the show, including some of the big things that have happened during particular years, 
Don't worry, I'm not going to go through full details of every single year. I'm going to give overviews of a lot of them. But the early years I want to pay special attention to, because that was back when E3 was kind of finding its identity. Now, before E3, hardware manufacturers and software companies would show off their stuff at other types of trade shows, one of the big ones being CES, formerly known as the Consumer Electronics Showcase. Uh, in fact, the Nintendo Entertainment System debuted at CES back in 1985, and uh, an Atari computer debuted back in the late 70s. Xbox, the original Xbox, debuted in 2001. That was even after E3 was formed. But the problem with CES is that it's really big, and it covers the entire spectrum of consumer electronics. Video games are just a tiny little slice of that, so they would often be overlooked, and sometimes they'd be put in really inconvenient spots on the show floor. And for a while, uh, CES and the Adult Entertainment Expo were running at the same time. There were times where, in order to get to the video game section at CES, you'd have to walk through the Adult Entertainment Conference to get there. And a lot of the companies that were working on video game systems and, and software, they didn't take too kindly to that. They didn't like that they were being shuffled off to the side or put in inconvenient locations. So there started to be some discussion among various companies about what they might do about that. So in 1994, some top video game publishers and hardware manufacturers formed a new organization called the Interactive Digital Software Association, or IDSA. Uh, this would later on evolve into the Entertainment Software Association, or ESA. So in part, that association acts as an advocacy group for video game companies, fighting for stuff that isn't always of benefit to consumers, uh, for example, the ESA has supported SOPA and PIPA, which are two pieces of legislation that a lot of people opposed. But they also advocate for stuff that consumers appreciate. And one of those things was, how can we create an event where we can have our own trade show and we're not overshadowed by other types of technology? So in 1995... This association partnered with a company called International Data Group, better known as IDG, to create a new trade show centered in Los Angeles. The event took place from May 11th to May 13th in 1995 at the Los Angeles Convention Center. And the day before the show floor opened, CEOs of some of the biggest game companies held a press conference to talk about the future of the gaming industry. If you follow E3 today, you know that essentially the same thing happens now, where companies will hold a huge press event uh, before the show floor opens in order to get as much coverage as possible and excite people and convince them to come to their booth at the show floor and cover their products. And uh, sometimes these events are amazing, and sometimes they are cringeworthy. You will... Sit through there and you'll hear some of the worst forced humor, particularly when you have executives who aren't really used to giving a lot of public speeches and they'll do terrible setups and punchlines. I mean, worse than mine. At least with mine, it's a natural delivery. The jokes are bad, but I know how to deliver them. So sometimes you get a great presentation that's really compelling. Sometimes you get a presentation that's pretty painful to watch. Usually the trailers help 
uh, the movie trailers or rather the video game trailers help. They, they can move things along even if the stage production part is a little hard to watch. So what was 1995 like? What was that first E3 actually like? Well, I wasn't there, but I've read a lot about it. Uh, that was a big year in video games, 1995. That was when um, Sega was touting the Sega Saturn. That was their attempt to try and wrest the number one spot away from N- Nintendo, uh, which ultimately actually would fall on Sony's shoulders, not N- Nintendo or not uh, Sega's shoulders. So Sega had already launched the Saturn in Japan at the tail end of 1994, but it wasn't scheduled to hit store shelves until September 2nd. However, during Sega's press conference, the company surprised the audience by announcing it had shipped the Saturn to a few retailers in the United States, meaning it was available that day for the retail price of $399. $400 bucks in 1995. That is not an insignificant amount of money. But it was a pretty good mic drop moment to say, you know, we thought about scheduling it so it would come out in September. It's available now. The uh, first Sony PlayStation had also launched in the end of 1994. So it was still new on the market in Japan, but it was not yet out in the United States. So in Sony's press conference, they talked about it debuting in the U.S., And Steve Race of Sony said only one thing during the press conference. Steve Race came out at the press conference, looked at the audience, and the only thing Race said was $299. And that brought the house down. It was $100 cheaper than the Sega alternative. Uh, Nintendo, for its part, announced that its next system, which would become known as the Nintendo 64 would be delayed until 1996. So they didn't have any hardware to show off. They didn't have an enormous press conference at E3, but they did throw a big party before the show itself. Uh, and the company has done some similar things in following E3 throughout the years. In fact, there are some years where Nintendo doesn't really have much of a, a presence at E3, but will hold its own event just before E3 to kind of piggyback onto everything. Nintendo also had the largest booth on the exhibition floor space in the main hall. The second largest booth uh, belonged to Acclaim. Now, one of the things Nintendo showed off was the Virtual Boy. Yes, the Virtual Boy, the migraine-making machine that convinced us that virtual reality was a long, long way away. And it also shows how unreliable my memory is. I always associate the Virtual Boy as something that came out earlier before 1995, like in the late 1980s. I, I associate it with my childhood, but actually I was I was older than that when it came out. Maybe I was just a child at heart. At any rate, the Virtual Boy was a, a, a big push from Nintendo, and obviously that did not work out so well for them. Meanwhile, you had a claim that was showing off licensed games like Judge Dredd and Batman Forever, uh, but those games were not terribly great they didn't look great it was it was clear that acclaim was not incredibly sure that this was alone going to pull people into their booth so they did something pretty innovative you know keep in mind this is the first e3 so what does acclaim do for their booth they get hold of the motorcycle from judge dread and the batmobile in batman forever and put both of those in their booth 
And they also hired a ton of models, uh, young ladies, wearing, uh, uh, revealing clothing to entice people into their booth. So even at the very first E3, there were booth babes, uh, which is not a great, you know, label, but that is what people tend to refer to, you know, the ladies who have been hired to bring people into the booth. Um, also at that time, the 3DO was still around. The 3DO, uh, famously, one of the entertainment systems that never really got a, a good foothold in the gaming industry. But it was still around at that point, so Gex the Gecko was there. Uh, 3DO also decided to get some ladies to try and bring people into their booth. Uh, in that case, 3DO went with the San Diego Chargers cheerleading squad. So, subtle. Also, Neo Geo CD debuted. That was from SNK. Uh, one of the people in attendance, a celebrity, this is really classy, uh, John Wayne Bobbitt. He was famous for, um, well, there's no reason to go into it on this show, but he was there. And he was promoting a company that created interactive porn software. So, a very... Uh, unsettling kind of thing for some of the other companies. They weren't so sure that they wanted to have this kind of entertainment included with video games. So they actually designed the show floor so there was a bordered off section uh, away from general traffic so that it wasn't just incorporated directly into the exhibition hall with everybody else. Sega had the biggest booth at the South Hall, Sony also had a very large booth. Sony's was particularly flashy and expensive. Uh, Sony threw a big party, and the biggest news about Sony's party was about someone who attended the party just to play games, Michael Jackson. Uh, and at that time, Atari was starting to fade from the home console market. Uh, the Jaguar had underperformed in the market, and so the company only had a small booth at E3. And if you're wondering what sort of big games were shown off in that year in 1995, they included classics like Twisted Metal and Mortal Kombat 3. Uh, the next year, in 1996, E3 was a different story. First of all, Sega Saturn had completely flopped in the market. And Nintendo's Virtual Boy also was a failure. So both of those companies were nursing their wounds in 1996. Sony PlayStation was actually starting to gain some traction and become competitive in, in Nintendo's space. It hadn't overtaken Nintendo yet, but it was on its way. And no one was really sure if the video game industry was doing well or not. There were a lot of fears that with all the different video game systems on the market from all the different companies, that the industry was heading toward another console crash, uh, like the video game crash of 1983. So Nintendo that year announced the N64 at the show. Remember the previous year they had to delay it. So they announced the N64 there saying it would cost $250. Uh, they also showed off Super Mario 64 and that got a great response. When people saw that Mario could move in three di di dimensions, it blew everyone's mind, which is kind of funny to think about now, but at the time it was huge. Uh, Nintendo also announced a game that's widely considered one of the best of all time, GoldenEye, which is based off the James Bond film. Now, they just sort of announced it and showed a little bit of concept art and stuff like that. They didn't really go into much detail. That would come later, the next year. 
They also showed off a slimmed-down Game Boy called the Game Boy Pocket. And at the Nintendo party, they had Cirque du Soleil performers performing stunts and walking on stilts and stuff, which was a little weird from what I understand. Again, I wasn't there at this one either. We'll be back with more about E3 in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break. Sony announced that the PlayStation would drop in price to $199. Now, this was controversial because the various presidents of the companies had kind of come to an understanding that no one was going to go to the press event and drop a bombshell that would adversely affect the other companies. So why did Sony come out and say the PlayStation was going to drop to $199? Well, this is because the person who was in charge of Sony at that time was newly in charge of Sony's uh, video game market. So his excuse was, hey, that was an agreement that my predecessor made. I never made that agreement. So Sony says, hey, we're going to drop the price to $199. That kind of uh, put the pressure on Nintendo and Sega, both of which would at the same event, announced that their new consoles would come down to $199. Um, so that was that was a big deal. It put a lot of pressure on those companies. That was also the year Microsoft first showed up to E3, 1996. But it wasn't to promote a console idea. It was to pitch Windows as a gaming platform. Now that might blow your mind that in 1996, Microsoft is saying, hey, let's have more developers create video games for Windows. But at that time, there were a lot of games that were still based on uh, or using DOS as the operating system of choice. So uh, this was uh, an uphill battle, or at least it seemed that way for Microsoft. It turned out that before too long, it would be impossible for you to find a game that would run on DOS. You had to get a Windows installation on your PC if you wanted to play games, because all the games were made for Windows. I remember at the time I was particularly perturbed by this, because I was a DOS boy. In 1997, E3 changed venues. It actually went to the Georgia Dome in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Didn't get to go to this one either. At the time in 97, I was not working at How Stuff Works, so I was not in the technology field. I would have loved to have attended but I wasn't uh, qualified. I, uh, E3, I should have mentioned earlier, is an industry-only event. It's only been open to the public a couple of times, and um, otherwise you have to be either in the video game industry or in journalism specifically covering video games. Otherwise, you are not supposed to go. Uh, a lot of people end up getting passes to go for various in various ways, like maybe they work in marketing, maybe they work for a video game retailer, like a a retail store. Uh, But in general, you're not supposed to just have anybody show up to these things. They have to have some the credentials required to get in. So Georgia Dome, 1997, the trade show held some conferences, some actual panel discussions, not just press events and game demos. Uh, They actually held discussions about emerging trends in video games, including a strange new world of online gaming, something that was relatively young in 1997. Also, there was a type of video game that was really starting to get incredibly popular, first-person shooters. They had been around for a few years, 
several years actually, um, since Wolfenstein 3D came out in the early 90s. But they were starting to get some real traction, and so there were conferences held about first-person shooters, uh, particularly for the consoles. So why did the company show off? Nintendo showed off GoldenEye 007. Uh, this time they showed a much more detailed demo, and that really impressed the E3 audience. Uh, the four-player split-screen approach was a big innovation for console games. Nintendo also showed off a cute game called Conker's Quest about a fluffy squirrel, and it was meant for kids. And this game would never come out, but it would mutate into a totally different, crude, and appropriate game called Conker's Bad Fur Day. More on that in a little bit. That same year, Sony announced Metal Gear Solid, which was technically a sequel to Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. Metal Gear Solid would become the foundation for an extremely popular franchise that, uh, as far as we know, has concluded since the creator has left the company that was publishing these. But that's a, that's a story for a different day. That would be an entire podcast all on its own. And in retrospect, many people felt that the 33 was kind of a letdown after the first two, and that the Georgia Dome was probably not the best venue for the event. Uh, that it just made the event too spread out, too difficult to navigate, and it just wasn't ideal for showing off these games and the companies. And another black mark for this E3, this was the E3 where Duke Nukem Forever was first announced. Now, that game would become synonymous with the term vaporware. And eventually, Duke Nukem Forever would emerge out of development hell in 2011. So announced in 97, but it wouldn't be until 2011 that it comes out, more than a decade later. And the response at the time was pretty negative. People were not impressed, especially considering that the game was spending more than 10 years in development. So it would be really crazy for me to go into this level of detail for every single year, for every E3. So I'm not going to do that. I'm now going to kind of give you just some highlights of each year moving forward. Um, and if you want to learn more about any given E3, I can always do a full episode about a specific year if there's something that you think is particularly interesting. But for now, let's look at some of the highlights. So in 1998, E3 was still in Atlanta. It had grown into a pretty major trade show with something like 70,000 attendees. And companies were going all out. They were getting some some big-name bands to play their parties. Like in 98, it included the Foo Fighters uh, and the B-52s at industry parties. And again, I'm very sad that I wasn't able to go in 98. Sega ended up showing off the Dreamcast, which was, in my opinion, one of the great consoles of that era. Sadly, I don't think Sega ever had a good idea of how to market it, how to leverage it. So despite the fact that it was a legitimately good contender in the console space, it never really got the the market support it needed to be a real competitor against Nintendo and Sony. Also shown in 98 was an early version of a little game called Half-Life, and it is an ongoing joke in video game journalism about whether or not Valve will announce Half-Life 3 at the next E3. Um, Half-Life is one of those games where people have been waiting for the conclusion of the story for quite some time, and there has been no word on 
if a Half-Life 3 is in development and even if it is, you know, when would it possibly come out? But there's no word on it even existing, period. So it, it remains one of the, uh, the, the snipes that we're hunting in video game journalism circles. Also in 98, Nintendo showed off a game that was The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, one of the um, highly, highly uh, critically claimed Zelda games that came out in that time. That and uh, uh, the, the mask one. I said Majora's Mask? I think so. That's the next one. But Ocarina of Time, that was a game that I also had. Um, and a lot of people thought that that was sort of the right direction for Nint- Nintendo to move in. In 1999, E3 came back to Los Angeles, so it leaves Atlanta, goes back to L.A. Uh, Sega announces that the Dreamcast launch date will be 9999, so September 9th, 1999, and will retail for $199, so it's pretty cute. Uh, Nintendo held a press conference that unveiled Project Dolphin. Project Dolphin would eventually become the GameCube. Uh, they also showed off Donkey Kong 64, Another game that was on display was Quake 3. Final Fantasy VIII was also shown off that year. So some big names in computer and video games. Uh, in 2000, there were uh, it was pretty much a game-heavy year. Um, the PlayStation 2 was announced by Sony. Uh, it had already launched in Japan, so announced rather for you know, U.S. shelves because the game system had already been out in Japan for quite some time. But uh, among the games that were announced were Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, Conker's Bad Fur Day. So now that Conker game that was originally meant for kids was definitely not meant for kids. It had lots of crude humor, a lot of cursing, uh, scatological humor, sexual humor, a lot of violence. I mean, the violence in that game is pretty incredible, even though the characters are very cartoony. Um, so Conker's Bad Fur Day was kind of shocking because it was so out of character for Nintendo. Um, and, and it marked something people were wondering if Nintendo was actually going to make a bigger move into that realm of video games. Actually, it, it did not for the most part. Some third party Nintendo games get pretty violent, but most of the first party stuff doesn't. Uh, also that year, the game Seaman was shown off, and Seaman is one of the weirdest games I've ever seen. And uh, again, I could do a full show about that, but if you ever are curious, you can search for it. Seaman, S-E-A-M-A-N, fish with a human face. Nothing, nothing wrong about that. Anyway, this was a more subdued E3, and partly because. It was held the same year as the Columbine shooting in the United States, the high school shooting. So there was a very different kind of atmosphere at this E3. Uh, the video game industry in general was under a lot of scrutiny at Washington, D.C. So it was uh, a diff- difficult year for many reasons. In 2001, Microsoft joins the game for real this time, talking about the Xbox but they didn't debut the Xbox at E3. They had already shown it off at CES. Uh, still, they brought it to E3 to kind of enter the fray along with Sony and Nintendo and 
kind of Sega. People uh, were still talking about Metal Gear Solid 2, which had been shown off the previous year, but still hadn't come out. Uh, a little game called Grand Theft Auto 3 was shown off in 2001. But here's the weird thing. No one really paid attention to it at the time. No one thought it was going to be a big deal. Uh, it was mostly overlooked. Nintendo was pushing the GameCube pretty hard, uh, but it was still delayed. It had not yet launched. And Sega pretty much got out of the hardware game that year. Uh, 2002, the biggest game on the show floor was Doom 3. And that was only in an early demo build. But the game caused shockwaves throughout the show floor. And it, the reason was because the game engine and the graphics engine were so advanced compared to other games that they really caught people's attention. There were a lot of effects that you didn't typically see in games at that time, like reflections. Um, so reflective surfaces were showing effective reflections. Also destructible environments. This was stuff that had not really been shown in games, at least not many games, up to this point. And it really got a lot of people's attention. Meanwhile, you had some... Uh, Interesting drama going on at the exhibition show floor. EA and Vivendi were fighting each other, Lord of the Rings and Hobbit style. And I really do mean that. So EA was showing the Two Towers preview over and over again, because uh, this was the year the Two Towers was going to come out. And then Vivendi was showing off footage from its Lord of the Rings and Hobbit-inspired games inside a domed theater and and projecting it on the top of the dome. So you had these two companies kind of Lord of the Rings fighting each other in a snarky way. Uh, the Army, the U.S. Army, was actually at E3 that year showing off a recruitment tool they had developed called America's Army. And if that sounds familiar to you, you are probably a fan of a certain zombie game. There have been a few mods of America's Army, and uh, uh, some of them have been pretty famous and including some that are more famous than America's army. But this was the year America's army showed up was 2002. Uh, also battlefield 1942 was a big hit that year in 2003. Half-life two became the big news. So doom three, the previous year, half-life two steals the show in 2003 and sets the stage for people to ask, where is half-life three for the next decade, more than a decade. Uh, Microsoft also got really good buzz because they showed off a preview for Halo 2. I remember distinctly watching videos of the Halo 2 reveal and hearing the audience go totally bonkers. Just like you could tell people were getting chills. And it makes you, if you're, not, if you haven't been to an E3 and seen one of these demos, it might be hard to imagine how such a thing could get a reaction, but it really is contagious. When people are getting excited, it's easy to also feel excited. Uh, it's a special kind of uh, experience. But um, yeah, Halo 2 made a big make a bit, big splash. Doom 3 had not yet come out, so id was being pretty quiet about Doom 3 for the most part in 2003, since it had not yet debuted. Uh, Sony, however announced new hardware, a PlayStation Portable, also known as the PSP. And that kind of gave Nintendo a bit of a scare because Nintendo had their Game Boy platform and now there was a new platform coming into play. Nokia also was there. The phone manufacturer was showing off a handheld device called the N-Gage, 
which failed to excite the crowd and ultimately became kind of a joke in video game circles, sadly. In 2004, the PSP was not yet playable. They showed it off at the show floor, but every PSP unit was tethered, the PlayStation Portable, in other words, it was tethered to a pedestal, and it wasn't showing a playable game, but rather just a looping video. So that got a lot of people disappointed. They did show off the PSP working in hands-off demos where a Sony representative was showing it off, but they didn't let attendees try it out. Nintendo that year unveiled the DS portable system. That's their dual screen system. Uh, and some of the f- games that people got excited about that were shown that year included God of War, uh, the start of another franchise, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. This time, the Grand Theft Auto game got a lot more attention. And The Sims 2. Uh, in 2005, it was a huge E3. That's when we started seeing the next generation of consoles debut. Microsoft unveiled the Xbox 360. Sony unveiled the PlayStation 3. And Nintendo showed off the Revolution, which would later become the Wii. And people began to complain about why, like, why would you change Revolution to Wii? Come on. But they did. Big games that year included uh, The Witcher, Alan Wake, The Elder Scrolls IV, Oblivion, Quake IV, Civilization IV, Battlefield II, Fear, Spore. So not all of those games necessarily lived up to the hype of E3. Again, not something that you should find particularly surprising. This happens every year. But it gives you an idea. Like These were the games that got people buzzing at E3 that year. Uh, Not all of them uh, paid off. Uh, 2006 was not a huge year, sadly. Uh, 2006 didn't have as big an impact as 2005, partly because 2005, that's when they had all the big hardware announcements. So this was more about games and less about hardware. But some of those games included some real classics like Bioshock and Assassin's Creed, Mass Effect. Those are big names in video games and computer games. Also, Metroid Prime 3 and Wii Sports were shown off that year. So it was a good year for games, but not one that unveiled a lot of hardware. Typically, I find that an E3 where there's not a new hardware announcement feels like a little bit of a letdown among the crowd. At least that's been my experience when I have attended E3. Any E3 I've been to where they didn't talk new hardware, people seem like, oh, I was really hoping to be surprised by something. Yeah, sometimes that just doesn't happen. We've got a bit more to say about E3, but before we get to that, let's take another quick break. In 2007, E3 shifted big time. So you may have heard about how E3 went through this transformation. Like it, it was a big party getting more and more out of control year over year. You had stories about booth babes and ridiculous parties with huge amounts of money being spent on bands and dancers and um, open bars and just that it was becoming a party atmosphere to the point where it was starting. Some people were feeling it was starting to harm the reputation of the video game industry overall. In 2007, E3 underwent an enormous change. It also had to do with a decline in video game sales in some areas. So it downsized dramatically 
First of all, E3 moved to Santa Monica, not Los Angeles, uh, and it was no longer held at a central location. Instead, companies held their own press events in various locations around Santa Monica, and attendance dropped. It was at about 60,000 in 2006. It moved down to 10,000, and that was partly in response to criticism of how E3 was really becoming this out-of-control party instead of a serious trade show. So there was some worry that this shift to a more serious E3 would eventually kill E3 itself. And there was a, you know, there were a lot of other rules in place, like you weren't supposed to have booth babes, you weren't supposed to have these super out of, uh, control booths with lots of set design. It was supposed to be much more utilitarian. Moving over to 2008, the E3 conference goes back to the LA Convention Center that year. Microsoft makes the move to turn its console into a fully-fledged home entertainment system, so now the 360 has a new live component that's been completely retooled. Um, Xbox Live became a real powerful uh, part of Microsoft's strategy, and Microsoft even added support for stuff like Netflix starting in 2008. This was back when Netflix was using its strategy of getting on every platform it possibly could in an attempt to make it a universally accessible app. But it also helped Microsoft at the time to kind of shift from being just a video game console to more of an entertainment system. Uh, that ended up being a difficult story for Microsoft to tell because at E3, generally speaking, your audience just wants the um the the video games they don't necessarily want you know oh i don't really care if my console also can show movies or access the internet i want to know about the games uh so that's been a kind of a difficult thing because there there are certainly portions of the console market out there that is incredibly interested in the entertainment system parts of the various current consoles uh, and so maybe E3 is one of those things where you just concentrate on the games and then other events you talk about the non-gaming related uh, capabilities of the console. Uh, lots of games were on display in 2008, including God of War 3, Killzone 2, Prince of Persia, Dragon Age, and Fallout 3. One of the best games of all time, in my opinion. Uh, there were rumors that that would be the final E3. People were wondering if, in fact... The the whole conference was just going to collapse in on itself. But then came 2009, and it totally wasn't the last E3. They had another one, and I got to go to this one. I actually attended E3 in 2009. Um, Microsoft showed off Project Natal, which would later become the Kinect sensor. Sony showed off its own motion control system, which would eventually become the Move controller system. People were arguing that this was in response to Nintendo Wii, which had already introduced motion controls and got a lot of attention. The Wii was incredibly successful early on, and partly because it appealed to people who weren't um, traditionally referred to as like hardcore gamers. I personally hate the term hardcore gamer, and I hate the term casual gamer, but essentially the Wii appealed to a broader range of people than the other consoles did. So in part, the Kinect and the Move were strategies to try and create a more um, appealing approach to a broader audience. Uh, although you could argue how effective or not effective they were. 
Some of the games announced include Left 4 Dead 2, which wasn't really shown off but was talked about, uh, Crackdown 2, Halo ODST, Forza 3, uh, The Beatles' Rock Band was shown off there, Star Wars The Old Republic was shown off there, uh, I ran into Jack Patillo and Jeff Ramsey at the 2009 E3 while in line for a demonstration of the Beatles rock band. I remember that. Nice guys, by the way. In 2010, Connect officially debuted, and so did PlayStation Move. There were tons of games announced in 2010, but I'm not going to go through them because they were almost all sequels. Uh, you've heard a lot of sequels already in this. And that's another issue, is that you have video game companies that are, uh, on the one hand, introducing new intellectual property is a good idea, because people start getting fed up with sequels, and there's always the opportunity to create a new franchise out of brand new intellectual property. On the other hand, the games that have already been established have audiences already, so it's easier to, or at least in theory, it's easier to please that audience by coming out with a new iteration of that or a new sequel to that, that franchise. But 2010 was pretty much franchise-heavy, or rather sequel-heavy, so I skipped it. 2011! <laughs> That's when Nintendo shows off the Wii U. This, of course, is the, the game system that has the controller with a gamepad in the middle of one of the controllers, and it allows for different types of gameplay, including using the gamepad as like a sight for a gun in a game or a scanner. Or sometimes you could do like a, a one gamer versus four gamer kind of thing with one person on the, the gamepad controller and the other people using the regular Wii controllers. Uh, it didn't really capture the imagination of the crowd the way Nintendo had hoped. Sony would unveil the PlayStation Vita in 2011. Microsoft didn't have any uh, new hardware, but it did unveil Halo 4, which got people excited. Um, Uncharted 3 and the Tomb Raider reboot both got a good response and are both very similar to one another. If you played Uncharted 3 and Tomb Raider, it's I, I like to think of them as... I think of Uncharted 3 uh, as the game called And Then I Climbed, and then Tomb Raider I think of as the game And Then I Fell Down. Uh, so, But maybe that's just me being snarky. It probably is. I'm an old man. Bioshock Infinite was unveiled, which had an amazing art style and uh, concept behind it. You can argue whether or not Bioshock Infinite ultimately lived up to its potential. Uh, I think it was pretty good. Um, I really enjoyed the game. They also showed off Skyrim. Again, another game that I, I loved. It took me a long time to complete it because I enjoyed playing it, but I wasn't too concerned about actually fulfilling the story. Uh, Mass Effect 3 also shown off in 2011, another game that both got people excited and ultimately got a lot of people angry when they, when they finished Mass Effect 3. 2012, not a hardware year, but a, definitely a big game year. Watch Dogs was shown off, although it would be delayed. It would be shown off again in 2013. Uh, but it wouldn't come out until 2014. Far Cry 3 was shown off in 2012. Assassin's Creed 3. Last of Us, one of the best games ever. I'm not a PlayStation fan in general. I'm an Xbox player primarily. However, I do have a PS3, and The Last of Us is one of the best games I've played on any platform. 
Uh, Resident Evil 6 was shown off. Dead Space 3 was shown off. But again, not a real hardware year. In 2013, that was the year of the Xbox One and the PS4. So a huge hardware year. And uh, there were big press events all around these two new consoles. Nintendo hung in there with the Wii U, but again, was not getting a lot of attention. Big games that were announced or on display that year included Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, another game that I really enjoyed, although I, I think it's particularly, uh, it's a little repetitive, but so are all the Assassin's Creed games. Uh, Diablo 3, Destiny was shown off, Halo 5, which was a big deal that Destiny and Halo 5 were being shown off. Uh, Bungie, of course, was the company that had designed or had come, had built the Halo games originally, but had moved on to work on Destiny. Uh, and then um, Microsoft was essentially the, the steward of the Halo franchise at that point. Elder Scrolls Online was shown off, uh, which I got to try and I thought was interesting, but ultimately never purchased, and it seems like I was not the only one. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 was unveiled. Mad Max was shown off. It would take a couple of years for that game to go through a couple of redesigns before it would debut. Saint Row, Saints Row 4, rather, was shown off. Star Wars Battlefront was teased. Quantum Break was uh, teased as well. Sunset Overdrive was shown off. And 2014 was another game-heavy year uh, with Alien Isolation, Dead Island 2, Dragon Age Inquisition, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, rather, Grim Fandango Remastered, which I was really excited about because that was one of those LucasArts games that I thought was really, really great. It was I was very happy to see that it was going to come back. Uh, game of Thrones game from Telltale was announced. Uh, no Man's Sky, which we're still waiting on right now, was shown off in 2014. Also 2015. Um, Mortal Kombat X shown off. Shadow of Mordor shown off in 2014. 2015, more games like Assassin's Creed Syndicate, Dark Souls 3, uh, Deus Ex, Mankind Divided, Fallout 4, which was uh, announced at Bethesda's first ever press conference, along with Fallout Shelter. Uh, The Division, Dishonored 2 was shown off a little bit or announced uh, Cuphead, Gears of War 4, I Am Bread. I Am Bread, one of the most important games made in the last decade. Uh, Mass Effect Andromeda was teased. Overwatch was first shown off. Um, I am currently playing Overwatch badly, so if you see me on Xbox Live, John B. Strickland is my gamer tag, and you will see me fail miserably, repeatedly at Overwatch. They also showed off Uncharted 4 and Until Dawn which I thought was a pretty interesting idea for a game. That brings us up to this year, 2016, and I realize I've just been rattling off video games. And if you're not interested in video games, I know that this has been a trial to listen to, and I apologize for that. But it was one of those things where it's kind of interesting to look back over E3 and hear some of these big names being mentioned years before they ever came out uh, due to delays, or maybe there were problems in production that weren't, uh, anticipated. I guess that technically that still falls under the term delay. I didn't list all the games because there could have been quite a few of games that just never came out or haven't come out yet at any rate. But, um, 2016, let's, let's clear it up. Let's take it on home. Microsoft uh, had a big press conference where they showed off the Xbox One S, also known as the Xbox One Slim, which is supposedly a uh, 40% smaller than the current Xbox. Um, Plus, they showed off a new wireless controller, so we got some new hardware this year. 
They also demonstrated a cross-platform program that would allow gamers to play the same games on Windows 10 or on an Xbox One. Uh, Sony, meanwhile, announced that in October 2016, it would release the PSVR. That's the Sony VR headset, what used to be called Project Morpheus. So it comes out later this year in October. Uh, probably one of the VR headsets that will have a decent chance at some early success because there are a lot of people who already own a PS4. So purchasing a headset, which I think is going to be $300, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the the number in front of me, uh, but people who want to buy it, they already have a PS4 that it'll run on. Whereas some of the other VR headsets, which have been a big, big deal in this past E3, like the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift, if you don't have a pretty strong computer system, a, a good gaming rig, then the purchase price of the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift is just the beginning. You have to go out and purchase a computer, too. And so the HTC Vive is 800 bucks. The Oculus Rift is 600 The computer you would need to run either of those at a really decent uh, performance setting would be a, about $1,300. So you're looking at more than $2,000 in the case of the HTC Vive to have a system. And that's before you talk about any games. That's just so that you have the hardware. So I think Sony's PSVR is positioned in a way where it could see more success than some of the alternatives, even though you could also argue that being tied to a console means that you have a ceiling for as, as good as it can get. Because with PCs, you can always upgrade. Or you can buy a brand new machine that is compatible with your your hardware and continue to push the limits of what that hardware can do. With a PS4, unless you purchase a brand new PS4 that has improved specs, and that may or may not happen, you've got a ceiling for as good as it's going to get. It'll just be at the top of the performance of the console, and then that's as far as you will go. So there were a lot of uh, VR titles shown at this year's E3, uh, including Star Trek Bridge Crew, which I think is brilliant. I would love to try that out. But there were other some there were some other big titles, uh, not just VR titles, but titles in general. Uh, Nintendo showed off the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. For a while, we were told that that was going to be the only thing Nintendo showed. They also showed some Pokemon. Uh, but a lot of people were uh, impressed by the Legend of Zelda trailer. Other games included Mafia 3 and Resident Evil 7, Titanfall 2, Watch Dogs 2, and lots, lots more. So going to one of these events can be fun and exhilarating. It's also exhausting. It's crowded. Uh, typically, if you are not someone who's exhibiting or have special access to the show floor before it opens, your experience tends to be waiting in line, uh, first waiting in line for the show floor to open, then the show floor opens, and there's an initial rush into the show floor as everyone tries to get to specific places. And then waiting in line some more so you can get your turn trying out the uh, the latest video game system. And um, it, it's, it can be frustrating because... You usually only get to play for a couple of minutes because the whole point of the demo is just to give you a feel for the way the title works. So it's not, um, it's not the ideal way, I would say, to experience a, 
a, a first impression of a video game unless you happen to be connected to a large outlet where they're bringing the games to you, in which case, you know, you get to sit back and, and have more time uh, and less frustration to enjoy the experience. However, you do get a chance to see these things firsthand, and uh, and there's something special about that. There's no denying that. I should also say I have never attended one of the E3s where people got a free console or a free game. I've never been. Some of the press conferences, occasionally you'll hear, hey, everyone here gets a voucher for a brand new Xbox. No, I've never been to one of those. I, I've, every year I have gone, the announcements have been interesting, but I didn't walk away with hundreds of dollars worth of swag. That's not so much a complaint, it's just me kind of thinking about my lousy timing. Uh, but that's not the reason that people should go. People should go because they're trying to cover the industry. Anyway, that's the E3 story so far. The, the conference has pretty much returned to the old party crazy sort of approach. Maybe the parties aren't quite as over the top as they used to be. But the show floor does still have some pretty impressive booths, usually with some amazing setting, uh, where, you know, you'll, you'll go in and they've redone the booth so that it looks like you're walking into one of the games, or you might see like a life-sized mech statue that you can get into and get a photo of yourself in it or that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it definitely has returned to the more showy version that it was when it first started. There are still some people who are asking whether or not E3 is valid. If it's a, if it's something that would, that should continue, or perhaps companies should hold their own press events at a time of year that is beneficial to them. In other words, go the Apple approach. Instead of being part of a big trade show like E3, go do your own thing, and that way you're not sharing the stage with all the other companies. I haven't heard any rumors about E3 going away, and I don't expect it'll go away in the short term, but perhaps we'll see a difference moving ahead. I, I think in the realm of VR, assuming VR is successful, E3 still has a very valuable place because that is somewhere that people can go and get that VR experience and then report on what that experience is like. Uh, it's it's harder to do that at individual press events. But at a big thing like ER, where you're going to find a lot of different companies working with VR headsets like HTC Vive or the Oculus Rift or one of the dozen other ones that are out there on the market, uh, you're more likely to be able to encounter that, experience it, and then communicate it to other people. And that wraps up the story about how E3 works. Now, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't really cover, some of which wasn't public knowledge in 2016 when I first recorded this episode. Uh, there have been numerous reports of disagreements at various levels of management within E3, or rather the organization that throws E3. Uh, there have been a lot of allegations of if not misbehavior, at least poor judgment. 
there's been a lot of debate about whether or not opening E3 up to the public has done more harm than good, if it has impeded journalists and industry professionals from actually doing their job, since it is supposed to be a trade show. There's been talk about how the big companies have gradually sort of distanced themselves from E3, Sony and Nintendo among them. Uh, there's been talk about how E3 may not come back because the the this COVID issue was the nail in the coffin, as it were, and that more and more companies are finding it possible to reach out to gamers, uh, to the media directly, as opposed to getting together to do it in a conference. The whole purpose of E3 originally was to elevate the uh, the the platform of video games to let more people know what was going on because otherwise it was just getting swallowed up in tech. But the video game industry is drastically different today than what it was when E3 was first started. So you could argue that E3 no longer really has at least the same place as it did when it launched. Perhaps it still has a place, but it has definitely evolved over the years. I think... If we were to lose E3, the biggest con of that, the biggest downside is that that would disproportionately affect independent studios that largely depend on events like E3 to gain visibility. These are studios that are producing titles that don't have the development dollars or the marketing budget of the big AAA titles. You're not going to get the same treatment of one of these quirky little titles that could be legit a fantastic game, maybe even game of the year material, but you're never going to get the same level of coverage that say a Skyrim or a Fallout, both of which are from the same company or a, you know, a Grand Theft Auto or, or a big ticket title that ties into like a major movie or a movie franchise. You're just not going to get that same level of of uh, attention unless you are part of a larger event, especially if you can get kind of taken under the wing of one of the really big companies like Microsoft or Sony. But that's really the biggest downside I can see because uh, otherwise the event has, I think, outlived its usefulness for a lot of the various players, no pun intended, who are involved with the video game industry. Certainly as a member of the media, I found it much more difficult to cover the event in more recent years than I did when I first went. Um, I'm sure that people in the industry also find it challenging, especially once the general public is allowed onto the show floor. Uh, it just becomes a crazy, busy, chaotic environment, and it's very hard to just get from point A to point B, let alone cover video games. So I don't know if E3 is gone for good or if we'll see, you know, more virtual events moving forward. I think it would be a shame for it to go completely. I do think that if it is going to exist as a, a semi-public event, things need to change fairly dramatically in the way that things work on the floor in order for it to be a less frustrating experience. I know that there were people who attended past E3s when the public was allowed who would wait sometimes up to words of maybe three or four hours to get just maybe 10 or 15 minutes of, of playtime with a game title. 
And I can't imagine that they walked away from that feeling that it was money well spent. If you walk out of the convention hall at the end of the afternoon and you say, I played, you know, total 45 minutes worth of games and I waited for the rest of that time, I'm not sure you're going to feel like that was the best use of your time and money. So I do think that if it is to continue, they need to overhaul the entire experience in order to make it one that is beneficial for all parties. It doesn't do anyone any favors if you walk out of the convention and you are miserable or angry or you feel like you you wasted your money. That isn't doing the developers any favors. It's not doing the, the gamers any favors. So if it is to continue to exist, uh, assuming we get to a world where such a thing can happen, I think it does need to have a major overhaul. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that classic episode. I promise the new episode will go live on Wednesday. It will be uh, how hard drives and solid state drives work or something similar along those lines. And hopefully by that point, I will have sussed out all of the issues with my computer system and my internet because I do not want that to happen again. You might have felt a disturbance in the force when that happened, as if a podcaster cried out in pain and anguish and then was suddenly silenced because his internet cut out. Anyway, if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, please get in touch with me. Let me know what those are, whether it's a technology, a company, a personality in tech, maybe just a trend in tech. Let me know. You can reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 